Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with 19 years experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance. I'm also a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider and have been helping corporations and individuals with planning for over 20 years. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net, and we have a link in the top right-hand corner that you can stream us. Obviously, catching us on 1230 a.m. if you're local is an option, but we have a lot of people that listen to us outside of the uh, CSRA. Yeah, just listen to us right off our website, moneymd.net. Also, you can download the TuneIn Radio app. On your smartphone and listen to us, you know, while you're walking around the house, jogging. I mean, whatever you're doing, um, it's a great way to listen. And yep. you can, if you get the pro version of that, you can also uh, record, record it. Yep. You can set it up to record every, so you can listen to it anytime. So that's a great yeah. way to do it. But do email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, I think we have a exciting show lined up for the day. Oh, interesting show. Yeah. Always. Always interesting. You know, got some interesting articles, very timely. And, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to be talking about uh, timing, speaking of timing. Yeah. Are you really trying to time the market? Yeah. Don't I do mean, it. I mean, come on. You know, I mean, yeah, people are doing this. And, <clears throat> of course, people don't know it. So They don't think they're timing. But um, we've got some interesting stats. There's, an, there's a study that just came out. We've seen these studies in the past, and we've talked about them. But we're going to. Dive into um, you know some of the details and and coach you on things to do and things not to do right exactly yeah that's going to be a good article um, so tune in for that and then also we're going to talk about is your car costing you more than your retirement oh goodness you know are you driving your retirement I mean people just don't realize how much a car costs so we got a great article we're going to dig into with that um, and we're going to talk about four ways to reduce the cost of of car ownership because it can be sinking your budget yeah this is a good one this is something many people don't think about I mean, there's some hidden costs when you when you own a car, and we'll give you some some good tips on that one. And then we're going to uh, end up the show with a, uh, a conversation about a medical uh, IRA. It's something that many people don't um, think about. And I actually had a, a meeting with um, a couple yesterday, and uh, just talking a little bit about their situation and and their opportunities for this medical IRA. So we'll explain what that is in the latter part of the show. Yeah, that's a great tax benefit and a great tool for medical expenses down the road. You got to use that if you're, you know, if it fits your situation. So you'll want to tune in for that. That's good. All right, though, we're going to start off with the financial fact of the week. You've heard the old saying about the writing is on the wall. Well, yeah. You know, the writing's on the wall when it comes to taxes, Dr. Marbot here, right? Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, this is interesting. The top 1% of U.S. taxpayers paid an average tax rate. Um, now, this is uh, the federal income tax is paid as a percentage of adjusted gross income. But that average tax rate was 23.5% in 2011 versus an average tax rate of 3.1% for the bottom 50% of taxpayers. And that's 
That's according to the Internal Revenue Service. So wow. people that say that you know the taxes aren't fair and aren't distributed correctly, I, I mean, it shows it's a progressive tax system, right? It's a very progressive tax system, and it's gotten a lot more progressive. If you look at the tax rates over the last 20 years, it's gotten a lot more progressive. So, you know, I mean, it's... It's discouraging for people that are, you know, trying to get up into the high income level and you know, the American dream, um, because all of a sudden on a marginal level, you feel like, you know, if people we sit down with feel like 50 or 60 percent of their income mm-hmm. is going away in taxes on a marginal level. You know, when they make an extra thousand bucks, That's they right. feel like they get almost nothing and none of that. Yeah. And a lot of people are sitting there saying, well, I'm not in the one percent and, and, and most of us are not in the one percent. I mean, that's a that's very right. elite um, number of people. But here's the writing that's on the wall is the taxes are creeping in on the middle class. Yeah, you know, that, that's that's the takeaway from this. And that's going to be the takeaway going forward. I mean, you know, we've said this before in Greece. Uh, you know, I read that the average um, their top tax bracket now hits somebody making fifty five thousand dollars or more. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, so so the worst you get, the worse a country gets financially, you know, the further they get in debt, the more they start looking for places to, to get money, right? And, and so they start redefining what is a wealthy person and, and what is the top tax bracket, mm-hmm. and it gets lower and lower and lower, and eventually it starts hitting the middle class, just like the, the alternative minimum tax, mm-hmm. you know, does that now some yeah, that's to people. Right. And um, so eventually, you know... I mean, if we let the tax system continue to get, you know, kind of warped the way it is. uh, It's going to affect more and more people. It's going to affect more and more people. sure is. So that's a great fact of the week, no doubt. All right. That leads up to our first topic, though, and that is uh, fund investors reveal their lousy timing. (laughs) Tell me it's not so. Yeah. I mean, you know, as many times as, as we hear, don't time the market, don't time the market, people still time the market. And they just, I guess they don't know they're doing it, John. I mean, it's kind of pathetic. Yeah, it is. You know, this article comes from from Kiplinger's, and obviously, you know, we're going to talk about some returns here, and past performance certainly doesn't um, guarantee future results. So we're kind of looking back in history a little bit. But, Steve, we've talked about this many times before. There are a lot of studies that are out there, but uh, a more recent one by Morningstar um, calculated that investors lag the average mutual fund by two and a half percentage points per year over the past 10 years. Yeah, that is huge. I mean, you know, if you think about the fact the market didn't really do that great over the last 10 years, mm-hmm. I mean, that's like a third of the return of the entire market Yeah, for, for the last 10 years. Yeah, that's right. And so what they saw is investors would buy high and sell low. And that's not that's not a good strategy, right? No. It's <laughs> buy not. high, sell low, don't do that. And that's what the typical fund investor really did over the last 10 years. And, you know, when you look at the, the data by, by Morningstar, they calculated the fund investor returns over the 10-year period that ended um, December the 31st. And the figures show that on average, investor dollars return an average of 2.5 percentage points less per year than the average mutual fund. Now, here's some of the stats. The average open-end fund, and this excludes money market, returned about 7.3% annualized over that period, and the average investor netted just 4.8% annualized. So let me put this into perspective. Yeah, it's pathetic. If you had $250,000 invested and you made 7.3%, right. it would have turned into 518000 This is over 10 years. <clears throat> 10 years. If you would have made 4.8%, it would have been 404000 That's $114,000 difference. That it cost you that just cost you. by losing your nerves yep. or, or just bad timing, just bad decisions. All you had to do was just... 
close your eyes and leave it alone. Yeah. You know, yeah. just forget about it. it. It is sad. It really is. And some investors, you know, do a, a decent job of identifying some, some good mutual funds. But, you know, quite frankly, the average investor, they undo that with um, just bad market timing. And, you know, over this 10-year period, investors' market timings were, were worse than normal. Uh, we had some, some very difficult markets, obviously, in 2007 through 2009. But, um, investors typically hurt themselves, um, and you know you're going to share they, some some stuff they did in 2013. But yeah, it's pathetic, you know. And unfortunately, people don't think their time to market right. I mean, we always we hear this. I mean, people will call in and say, you know, I I think we're in a bad place here with the economy. I just want to sit out a few months. You know, yeah. they don't ever call up and say, hey, Steve, you know, I want to time the market. Yeah, uh, let's 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 play a little, little right. Russian roulette here and let's do a little market timing. I never hear that. It's no, always it's never couches. I, I just want to sit out a few months. You know, I'm gonna get back in. I'm yep. just a little uncomfortable where I'm at. Well, you know, I mean that 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 sitting out a few months may cost you dearly, and, and that and is time in the market. That's exactly what it is, and that's what happens. You know, yeah. I mean, making matters much worse, uh, investors got 2013 totally wrong. I mean, at the start of the year, they yanked money out of U.S. stock funds. They poured it into bond funds and emerging market funds. U.S. stocks, of course, had a fabulous year. The S&P 500 made 32.4% last year. Mm-hmm. You know, Meanwhile, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index fell 2.3%, and the Barclays U.S. Aggregate Bond Index fell 2% last year. So, you know, investors move money in the entire wrong direction. And then late in the year, after the market had already had already taken off, you know, money poured back into stock funds. Yeah. So it's just people just react to their emotions and just leave it alone. You know, don't open the envelope yeah. if you think it's going to be bad news. <laughs> well, the other thing to remember is is markets do go through cycles and they sometimes go up and sometimes go down. And the key, as we talked about, is getting in a good profile up front with a mix between stocks and bonds. But, you know, um, Morningstar has, has done this 10-year study and the 10-year period prior to this was a little bit better. It wasn't as high as a 2.5 percentage point difference that we're talking about. But 2013 turned out to be a banner year for bad timing because the markets did so well. And, Steve, we also um, – it's not mentioned in this article, but we talk about the the Dalbar study, right. which looks over 20-year period, and we see similar results. We see you know, markets making 8 or 9% and the average investor making 4 you know, to 5%. So Same this thing. is, yeah. yeah, I mean, there are studies that are done that average investors, um, they let their emotions take control and that it hurts them uh, in their performance, right? It does. I mean, you just have to remove yourself from the temptation to, to, to follow your emotions. You know I mean? It's like if you're dieting. I mean, if you've got an eating problem, don't go to the refrigerator. Stay okay. away from Krispy Kreme. Stay right? away from Krispy Kreme. Don't go out to eat. <laughs> They're not that right? high. I mean, it's the same thing with with investing. You know, I mean, if you got a problem following your emotions and you you have the urge to do something based on you know what you're feeling today, just just stay away. Don't do it. Go find something else to keep you busy. Anyway, we'll continue this when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back. 
to Money MT, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Barber, the certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. We are continuing our discussion here before the break about fund investors reveal their lousy timing. You know, I mean, investors, regardless of their good intentions, which, I mean, they all, everybody has good intentions mm-hmm. with their investments, of course, because it costs us real money if we don't. Um, people just tend to follow their emotions, John, and they and they pull money out of the market and they put it back in, you know, based on their emotions. They don't think their time in the market, but that's exactly what they're doing. You know, it's not an organized strategy of time in the market, but it's a disorganized emotional strategy of time in the market, which is probably even worse. Yeah, and the results kind of bear that out. Um, it, what it, this study that Morningstar did. Um, shows that the average mutual fund investor lagged the uh, the average mutual fund by about two and a half percent over this ten year period, and we did the example of you know it costing a couple hundred thousand or one hundred fourteen thousand was the difference. I mean, it's, we're talking about real money here, right? That's exactly I mean, right. This is a this is it, a big it's, deal. It's a real big deal. I mean, that's like a third of the return over yeah. the last ten years that the average investor missed because they were out of the market. Yeah, and you know, investors not surprisingly. They tended to do the worst with the funds that are in the most volatile um, sectors of the of the market. Uh, for the 10-year period ending uh, 2013, the average uh, sector fund returned uh, about 9.5%, but the average investor in the sector funds only made 6.3%. So that gap was, you know, 3.2 percentage points. So depending on which sector that they invested in, the results differed. And you've got some other examples here as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, people did as poorly with foreign and global stocks. Um, these funds averaged 8.8% compared to 5.8% for the average investor. So there was a 3% gap with inter- international stock funds and global stock funds with investing for the average investor. So, I mean, again, it's just it's just following your mm-hmm. emotions, pulling money out at the wrong time, putting it back in at the wrong time. Investors actually did best, thankfully, in U.S. stock funds. That's where many investors have the lion's share of their money. So fortunately for them, you know, they did a little bit better there. But still, over the past 10 years, U.S. stock funds returned an annualized return of 8.2%. And I think that includes large and small. That's like the total market. Mm -hmm. um, Compared to 6.5% for the average investor. So the shortfall is 1.7% per year. Not quite as bad, but still a huge, uh, you know, that's a huge yeah, drawdown. It, it makes I mean, a big difference. It's huge. And then you look at bonds. Uh, you would have thought, you know, bond funds are the place that people would have put their money. Well, there was a gap there as well, 2.2 percentage points. So, you know, Steve, I guess the question is, is what can an investor do um, to, to avoid this underperformance? And, you know, there's a, a simple solution out there. Um, all you need to do is there pick is. an allocation in stocks, bonds, and cash and stick with it. And I, I kind of put another answer here uh, for myself is maybe working with an advisor. Sometimes sure. that's part of the value that we add to our clients is talking them through, giving them some history. Obviously, no one can predict the direction of the markets, but kind of grounding them a little bit and taking the emotion out of it. And some perspective. I think we really earn our key whenever markets are very turbulent, very volatile, we're going through a bad period, and investors tend to 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 not get the big picture. You know, mm-hmm. they don't tend to back up and look at 10 years, look at 60 years and really see what markets do and what part of the cycle we're in. And I think as an advisor, we're able to add that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I would add to this though that 
you know, professionals do the same thing that the average investor does. Oh, yeah. They do. You know? they try I mean, to... if you look at mutual funds that are actively managed where, where investors are, are – there's a manager that's buying and selling a lot in the fund when the turnover is more than, say, you know, 5 or 10%. Um, it typically is the same thing. They underperform on average. They underperform the, the S&P 500 or the index they're most comparable to, and it's because they're following their emotions, even though they're trying to beat the market. And these are the, quote, pros. Those are the pros. <laughs> right. So you really need to have index funds. You need to have asset class funds. You need to have funds that, that are tracking an asset class that are not – Subject to some kind of market timing or, mm-hmm. or you know emotions. Yeah, you know the worst one of the worst mistakes investors can make is to change their course based on news. I mean, you hear that the Russians have invaded Crimea, and you think it's time to cut back on Russian stocks, or maybe just European stocks, or, or maybe all stocks. Right? Um, you read that the U.S. economy may be finally picking up steam, and you decide to increase your allocation to uh, to stock funds. I mean, the urge to take action on this news sometimes is irresistible. And, you know, what people tend to forget, Steve, is that when some geopolitical event occurs or when an important economic figure is released, it's almost immediately reflected in the share prices. I mean, the market isn't perfect, perfectly efficient, but it's pretty close um, at reflecting new developments, and it's almost instantaneous. So, you know, unless you know something the market doesn't, which – most people don't, um, That's right. and, and investors almost never do. Um, you need to, you're better off sticking with your current allocations. And you know, I think as we look at this article and we see this out there, we we see our, sometimes our clients are tempted based on the news. I think you're right. I think talking back and reflecting a little bit on what your goals are, what your allocations are, is the best strategy. You know, to try to get weather some of the difficult times. It is. It is very hard. I mean, even for, for professionals to not get your emotions involved and try to do something about it when markets are down. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody feels like they need to pull out the screwdriver and try to fix it. And the key is you have to realize and have a perspective that you can't fix it. You're diversified. You're allocated. You know, you've got to focus on your long-term goals and stay away from, you know, keep the tools in the tool bag. Keep your emotions in in the in your emotional, you know, tool bag. Do not use it with your investments. Leave and, your investments alone. And, and if you're a long-term investor and you believe markets will go up over time, and, and that's what they have done historically and we think they will going forward, obviously no one has the exact answer. But if you're a young investor or an investor that's, you know, 20, you know, 10, 20 years out, when the market goes down, that's actually could be a pretty good time to invest, right? It's an opportunity. That buy low thing we talked about. Exactly. And if you're in retirement, you know, if you're taking income from your portfolio, if it's structured right and you have some bonds, 40 or 50 or 60% bonds, you can leave your equities alone and you can pull some income off of the bond piece of it. So exactly. And rebalancing, you know, I mean, if you have a, if you have an advisor and you're, you're, you're able to, to rebalance portfolios as we do. And as a lot of advisors do, then, you know, you're able to sell a little bit of what's high, buy a little bit of what's low in the portfolio, and volatility actually helps that process. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it can work for you, but but you have to keep your emotions out of the picture. It has to be a disciplined strategy. Yeah. So d- don't try to time the market. Exactly. It can be painful. Okay. Well, that leads us up here to our question of the week. Yeah, this question, Steve, we get very frequently. Um, you know, pensions are a dying benefit. Um you know, the folks that are retiring now, the baby boomers, are fortunate that they many of them do have uh, pension plans, right? And yeah. so they have a lot of different options. It's very confusing. Um, and so we get this question a lot of times from folks out at the um, Savannah River site, and it's should I take income leveling 
uh, and and you know have the spousal um, as a beneficiary, or what combination should should you use? And I'll let you. Take yeah. a shot at that first, and I'll I'll fill in. Okay, good. Yeah, I mean, income leveling, that's that's one of those things that, you know, it's tempting to do. I, I like to suggest for most folks they do not take income leveling if they can afford not to, um, right? Because, you know, what income leveling is, it's, it's leveling out your pension with your Social Security. So you get a higher pension benefit initially. Then when you turn 62, it drops, drops right. by an estimate of what your Social Security would come in at at 62, so that your 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 level your income's level. What happens there is you're locking yourself into no um, or none or very little um, inflation adjustments over your entire retirement, mm-hmm. right? Because pensions usually are not inflation adjusted. Right. Right. So I love to see somebody li- learn to live off a little bit less while they're initially retired in the first maybe four years if they retire at 58, like out at the site mm-hmm. with full pension, and then when they turn 62 or 65 or 66, then then their Social Security kicks in, and they get a, a nice jump in their retirement income, right? Because um, – and that helps to, to keep them up with inflation. Yeah. Um, because if you start off with all the income you're ever going to get – and, you know, 10 years down the road, I mean, 58 is pretty young, right? 60 is even pretty young oh, for retirement. So, you know, 10 years down the road, you're going to be hurting if inflation runs, you know, even 3% per year. Yeah, and every situation is different. But I, I, I do agree with you with, your, with the income leveling. Some pension plans don't don't give you that option. Some pension plans have a different um, option of do you take um, a sole survivor benefit, which is a little bit higher, or do you have your, your spouse receiving some? And that... Again, most of the time we lean towards you know having some for the spouse, but sure. you can you can replace that income with an insurance policy. Yeah, that, and so, that's a different question. So, you know, do whether you have a spousal benefit. Yeah, so there's some different strategies out there. If you need help with with your situation, we can certainly look at your you know details, look at the pension options that you're that you're uh, offered, and help you make the best decision. I mean, that's kind of what we do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, spousal benefits very important. You know, you got to make sure your 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 survivors um, are going to have enough income to live off of yeah. no question so you have to have insurance or you have to have a spousal benefit you know built into your pension some way for them to, to make up that income loss so um you know you just have to look at your whole situation in that case and whether they have a pension there's a lot of things playing into that mm-hmm. so it's that's a little more tricky question uh, you know in terms of spousal benefit Okay, well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can call us at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we're going to lead off our second segment here um, with a new topic, and that is, is your car costing you more than your retirement? Yeah, John. You could be driving your retirement. You very well could be. I mean... These numbers are kind of staggering when you look at, you know, AAA's numbers on what the average car costs, John, and we'll dig into it in a minute. But seriously, it's more than most people are putting in the retirement plan. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You know, and uh, if you were putting that much in your retirement plan, you would retire rich. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, so you got to think about this, you know, I mean, your car is 
definitely one of your biggest expense. So, yeah, I mean, the title of this article really is, you know, you, your car could be driving your budget into the ground. Um, and it came out here recently uh, off of uh, Yahoo Finance, I believe. And so, you know, have you ever questioned, I mean, wh- ever wonder where your money disappears every month? I mean, take a look in your garage, your Mercedes or Ford. It doesn't matter. You know, what kind of car you're driving, it costs a lot more than you think, and it could be driving your budget literally into the ground. Um, If you're driving 15,000 miles a year, they say here, um, which, of course, is about average for the American person. Not at all. And in a mid-sized sedan, such as a Toyota Camry or a Ford Fusion, you'll spend more than $760 per month on average, or about $91.50 per year, on gas, maintenance, tires, uh, full coverage insurance, uh, license, registration costs, depreciation, and finance charges. Wow. That is amazing. I mean, ninety-one <clears throat> fifty per year. If you do that for like 40 years, you're going to have a chunk of change. That's a chunk of change. Well so, over a million dollars. You know, boy, I mean, if you would like live beside your work and could walk to work, I mean, you'd, you'd just it'd be one less car, basically. If you carpooled to work, I mean, there's a lot of money you're yeah. saving. You know, so you got to think about that. It's more than just gas, partner. That's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, that's according to the annual report by AAA um, Auto Club that on driving costs in 2013 based on uh, buying a new car and driving it for five years and 75,000 miles, um, but your cost easily could be higher. In fact, I mean, if you have an SUV, it'll cost you almost $1,000 per month, John, $11,600 per year, which is about $2,500 a year more than that sedan was costing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, according to AAA. And don't forget those one-time and infrequent costs not included in the report. You know, a $10 pop for a car wash every month, yeah. occasional parking ticket, um, you know, say 40 bucks. you got to keep that ride looking spiffy, right? That's right. Spending that kind of money on it. Exactly. You should. I mean, you, you ought to be covering that baby up every night because, you know. <laughs> Tucking it in. She's costing you more than your, your child is. <laughs> You know, perhaps you're you're also shelling out for, you know, paid parking at the baseball game or, you know, downtown garage. I mean, there's all kind of things you can add to this, John. But the bottom line is a car is very, very expensive. It's something you need to pay attention to. Yeah, it's $760 a month even for a sedan. That's that's a huge number. I mean, that's that, that really surprised me when I saw that. And, you know, you could also add in the square footage of your garage. Uh, let's say you have a 400-square-foot uh, garage at $100 a square foot, that's $40,000 of your mortgage that's going just to protect that pretty little car that you have. <laughs> you know, plus, if you're like, you know, 76, 76% of Americans, you drive to work alone. And it takes you about 50 minutes a day round trip on average. Um, your driving costs are counted in AAA's estimate. But what about the value of your time? I mean, that's there's... That's a great point. You know, you could be using that for something else if you didn't have to drive so far. You, yeah. you know work from home or you know kathy has an aunt that lives in downtown chicago aunt bonnie we call her she's kind of the little crazy aunt a little bit you know yeah, and i've always listening th- to- i've always thought she was really nuts for living in downtown chicago i mean who would live in downtown chicago well you know what she she gets she walks everywhere she takes the subway hmm. she doesn't drive a car at all yeah 
And now I'm starting to think, you know, I mean, Aunt Bonnie may be the brilliant one yeah. in the family because she's saving a ton you could of also, money. You could also do that in Miami or some warm place. Yeah, the, right. Exactly. That'd be Chicago. my more my speed. You yeah. know, do it in Orlando or Key somewhere. West or yeah, there you go. Now you're talking <laughs> Bahamas. I mean, yeah. Let's say your time is worth twenty five dollars an hour. I mean, you add up the fifteen minute commute every weekday for all but you know two weeks a year, and you're spending about fifty two hundred dollars a year in time that you spend in your car. After ten years, that's fifty two thousand dollars worth of time that's gone. Um, not to mention. The $94,500 in direct car costs, mm-hmm. even without figuring in your garage um, financing costs. So you realize, too, that, you know, where you choose to live plays a part, right? I mean, transportation varies by region. Um, some of the most expensive U.S. housing markets include San Francisco, New York, Rise high in the center's affordability rankings when um, transportation costs are factored in. In the more spread out places, such as Houston or Tampa or Atlanta, for example, uh, you know, they become uh, less affordable because you're spread out and you have mm-hmm. to drive a lot further. And sure. Your commute time is longer, so you're spending a lot of time in the car. In places that are compact, close to jobs, um, with a variety of transportation choices, people spend less. In dispersed areas, people need to own a lot more autos, and they need to drive them further, and hence the costs go up is what they're saying here. So, I mean, take a look at these tips for the ways to reduce your automobile cost. Um, we got four uh, pretty good tips here, and, and the point is don't ignore the expenses in your decision-making because these are really, really big. Yes, yeah, so number one here on the list is, is when you're buying a car, don't buy more than you need. Um, before you rush into a car purchase, you got to consider your long-term uh, finances. The the difference in annual cost between a small and a medium-sized sedan driven for that fifteen thousand miles annually is more than two thousand a year. And you know there's a similar difference between mid-sized and large sedans. That's according to to AAA. So it makes a difference. It adds up. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, I mean in the showroom it, it might be a five thousand dollar difference, but in the long term. It's a five-figure difference, says um, this technical, you know, services manager at AAA. Um, they compiled the figures in their dri- your driving cost report they do annually, and so. But why not put your children's, you know, your child's college fund into your mortgage, mm-hmm. you know, or your mortgage in? Basically, is what they're saying here. I mean, why not put that extra money yeah. in? Something more something more productive, yeah. right, than your car. I mean, you make an extra $2,000 house payment once a year could slash your interest payments by more than $40,000, plus reduce your your long-term, uh, you know, uh, your loan term by seven years, according to, um, you know, AAA, if you had a 30-year mortgage and $200,000 loan at 4%. So, I mean, also, I mean, going a little step further, why not just pay cash for your cars, ah, right? That's crazy. What are yeah, you talking about, man? Yeah, nuts. Cash for your car? Nobody can do that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, Dave it's Dave Ramsey funny. says you can. You can. Right. You can. And here's the thing. You just get ahead of your car payment once, right? You only have to do it once. Mm-hmm. You save the money ahead of time. You get a little patient. So you, 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 you save the money for five years or however long it takes. And then once you you have your first car that you paid cash for, John, um, once you got ahead, you just put the equivalent of a car payment into a savings account Mm -hmm. every month, right? An investment account. 
Um, we, I've done the math on this before, and you potentially save over a hundred thousand dollars in your lifetime. In fact, you know, in some figures I've run, it was two hundred thousand dollars over your lifetime. Goodness, on finance charges and just the additional return on your savings. You know, by saving ahead of time mm-hmm. rather than paying. That's a big than, number. Rather than financing, exactly, it's huge. It's huge. So that was number one. Number two here is, don't buy new. Buying a new car is a losing bet. It's the single biggest expense um, that you'll have, and, and that is depreciation. Um, and that's probably far and away the most overlooked cost of vehicle ownership, they say here. Um, cars depreciate at different rates, but generally in the first year, it's going to depreciate roughly 20%, um, they say here, according to Edmonds. And so check out the true cost of, of your ownership tool. They have one at edmunds.com mm-hmm. slash TCO, and they can show you exactly how much it would cost in depreciation. But depreciation is a huge expense. It is. And, and so buy used. Um, and look at cars that hold their value very well. Honda Accord, to, Toyota Camry um, are mentioned here. It goes on to say that uh, Mercedes, BMWs, Lexus, they're, they're wonderful cars, but they take a huge hit, probably you know, certainly bigger than the 20% in the first couple of years of depreciation. So if you do buy buy used, you can save a ton of money. Yeah, I mean, if you buy a nice car or a luxury car, I mean, depreciation is going to eat you alive. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. So buying used, I mean, I think if you buy a car that's just a maybe just a couple years used, um, you will save far more than the typical two years of use on a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, that you would experience um, later on down the road. So I think it makes all the difference in the world on depreciation if you just buy something that's used. It can still be in, under warranty as well. Sure. So, all right, well, that leads up to our break here, and we'll continue this when we come back. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we're continuing our discussion here before the break about is your car costing more than your retirement? Um, John, you know, when you look at these numbers that AAA puts out, the numbers really are staggering yeah. how much a car costs to own and operate, you know, when you include depreciation and finance charges and the whole thing. Yeah, tires, most people don't think about those things. It adds up to almost 800 bucks for a sedan. I mean, that's more than it's, most people put in their retirement plan. It's unbelievable. Yes, per month. I mean, it's ninety-one fifty per year for the average sedan. They say here, and if you own an SUV, a bigger vehicle, it's eleven thousand six hundred per year. That's twenty five hundred more than mm. owning a sedan. Yeah, you don't think about when you step up to the next size that it's going to cost that much more every single year, not just the first year you own it. That's right. You know, so it's a huge difference, and so you got to pay attention to that. And they have four ways here to to reduce um, the cost for for uh, you know car ownership. And one of the ways here was was don't buy more than you need. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean if you're if you only need a midsize car, buy a midsize car. If you buy that big luxury sedan, you know, or SUV, it's going to cost you a lot more every single year. Because of depreciation, but also because of, you know, tires are more, um, everything is more, yeah. maintenance insurance, is more, yeah. insurance is more, it, it's all more. 
So if you're buying 20% more car, it's going to cost you 20% more every single year probably and for all those things, including gas. So that was number one here on the list. Number two here on the list is don't buy new. Um, I mean, we know this. We've talked about this before. You know, buying a used car a couple years old or, or so um, that's still a good used car saves you a ton of money because the second you drive it off the lot, it's going to depreciate. Oh, yeah. Right, a Dave, lot. Dave Ramsey says if you want to do that, just buy a, a, a used one and throw $100 bills out the window. That's kind of what you're doing. <laughs> well, you know, it's you more think fun a, that way. Exactly. I mean, you think about it. You know, cars depreciate like 20% a year. So if you're buying a $40,000 new car, that's $8,000 in the first year and, you know, another 7500 or something in the second year. If you if you buy the car when it's only valued at twenty five thousand, mm-hmm. well, then the first year depreciation is only five thousand rather than eight. You've saved two thousand dollars, yeah. I mean three thousand dollars right off the bat just in depreciation. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense. So okay, so that leads up to number three here on the list, and that is read the manual. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the good news is that even though repair costs rise as cars age, the longer you own your car, the less it costs to own and operate. Um, today's cars are pretty pretty darn reliable, they're saying here, and most will go 100,000 miles without needing a major repair. But don't over over-medicate your car with oil changes and the like. Cars have changed a lot um, in the last couple of decades. Engines are stronger. Lubricants work better now, they say. Um, so instead, read your car's owner, owner manual. Um, there's always a section on the upcoming services that are needed. You know, call your mechanic for an estimate um, and figure that into your budget. I mean, there are also various apps out there that can help you track, you know, your gas mileage and improve on your budgeting. Fuelly is one of those. Um, I've never heard of that, John, but it sounds pretty Mm. interesting. I might go check that out. It's called Fuelly. So it's fuel with an L-Y on the end. Um, And, yeah, I would say, you know, service departments, if you let them do everything they want to do, uh, you know, you'll spend thousands oh, of dollars no each year on service for things like flushing your radiator, yeah. which usually never needs doing. Yeah, you know, so you got to think about it, you know, before you just open it up to whatever the service department wants to do. Yeah, and the last one here on the list is insurance cost. You just got to make sure when you buy a car, you understand what that is. The bigger car you get, you know, the faster it is. Sometimes, um, you know, it's going to cost more. So get a quote before you go in and buy that car. Yeah, and also don't overinsure your car. I mean, you know, maybe it makes sense to carry comprehensive if you're driving a newer car or have it financed, but do you really need the road hazard insurance or the towing? You know, take a look at your limits. Make sure you're not carrying unnecessary high, unnecessarily high limits or comprehensive insurance on a car that may now only be worth a few thousand dollars. So you just got to pay attention to what your car is costing you because it's, it's a lot, according to AAA. It's good. So Good article. All right, that leads us up here to our uh, prescription, prescription of the week. Yeah, this has to do with um, saving money. Go figure, right? We like it. Yeah. Great way to save money, Steve, and, and, and we both do this. Our wives are fantastic at this, is is buying um, uh, gifts right after a major holiday. As an example, Mother's Day is coming up. You know, a day after Mother's Day or two days when the cards are 75% off, buy one for next year. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, it's about the thought, right? Yeah. How about that Easter candy, man? Yeah, absolutely. Get that stuff for a bargain, like, on, you know, the day after. Tammy does a great job of of shopping, you know, after the holidays, after, you know, a major, you know, event or whatever. And everything's on 75% off. I mean, that's a perfect time to buy. 
Yeah, I would say this, though. I'd throw this in there. Don't use that as an excuse to go out and just randomly buy junk. Oh, okay. Good you point. know, you, you got to have a list and you got to have a budget and know that you're going to need that item. I mean, people will go out and they'll go to sales and just buy all kind of stuff thinking, oh, yeah, I'll use this next Christmas. And then they can't even remember where they put it. You know, much less actually, you know, use it and give it to somebody. And yeah, it takes uh, a little bit of planning. So you got to plan it, okay? Don't just randomly go go to sales. So, but that's a good, good uh, financial fact of the week. Okay, and that leads up to our last topic here, and that is um, HSA strategy. Create a medical IRA. Um, you know, this is a great topic because people. This is one of those, one of the best overlooked tax benefits yeah. i think in the world you get a tax break on the front end and you get a tax break on the back end as long as it's used for medical i mean how good is that you there's to double tax break there's no other account like it there's nothing i mean it, it really is a, a fantastic um, deal and so some people are using the hsa healthcare savings account now you have to have a high deductible plan in order to do that but they're using that as a um as an ira that they'll use in retirement Exactly. And most people now with, you know, the Affordable Care Act and all the stuff that's gone on, they, they've gravitated toward higher deductible plans anyway. So a lot of people are already close to this. Yeah. You know, when the Affordable Care Act was signed into law a couple of years ago, it seemed that the health care savings accounts were, you know, dealt to death blow. Um, you know, these are tax advantage vehicles available only to consumers, like we said, in high deductible plans. No, after all, in Massachusetts, where they had similar legislation, the HSAs have lagged in popularity, um, and so many people feared that this was going to dampen the HSA growth. Yeah, but, you know, fortunately, that's not been the case nationwide. Um, in fact, HSAs are thriving in the new environment, according to uh, this HSA consulting service here in Minnesota. Um, and, and so HSA-compliant health insurance plans account for about 20% of the offerings on the new health care exchanges. That's about three times the current 7% HSA market share of the commercial insurance. So outside of the Affordable Care Act, large companies are accelerating the growth of adoption of HSA plans, and participants in the fast-growing private exchanges are choosing HSA plans more than 50% of the time, according to industry reports. So that's a great trend. Yeah, it is. And you know, as a result, clients can continue to, to gain the benefits of HSAs. Uh, many advisors see a great opportunity in taking advantage of this. There's one gentleman who's a, um, a financial planner um, that says most people who pay for their own premiums under Obamacare, um, they have minimal deductibles. Um, $5,000. And so with no first dollar coverage, uh, except for preventative care, it makes sense, you know, to look at this HSA as a as an opportunity, right? Yeah. And they note here, you know, if people are on the hook already for $5,000 deductible, they might as well get an HSA plan for the tax benefits, because those tax benefits are substantial. Mm-hmm. Uh, allowable HSA contributions for, for this year range from $3,300 um, for younger buyers, less than fifty-five uh, to seventy-seven fifty for those over fifty-five with family coverage. So, you know, these payments are also tax deductible. Okay, I mean, it's a top of the line tax adjustment to income on the front page of your ten forty. So it's a big deal. I mean, earnings inside of HSAs also are untaxed distributions. Escape federal taxes and state taxes if they're used to pay for qualified health costs so it's taxed it's tax-free on both ends yeah and no income limits i mean that's a big deal sweet yeah that's sweet hsa deductions can also reduce exposure to the um 
3.8% surtax on net investment income. So, Steve, I, I met with a couple, like I said, this last week, 32 years old. They have an HSA option, and so I kind of talked with them a little bit about a strategy of, you know, in retirement we've seen statistics of uh, couples spending a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars on medical. So why not instead of saving everything in the four hundred one k, that's going to be taxed at the end of it when it's used for medical. Why not save it in the HSA, get a tax break just like a four hundred one k, but then no taxes on the tail end of it. Yeah, it's beautiful, John. They also allow you to accumulate your expenses. So, you know, you can, over the life of your HSA, you can accumulate what you paid in medical bills, just throw it in a file somewhere, and then at the end, you know, when you want to take the money out, you can write off all of those expenses against what you take out of the HSA plan and and take a qualified distribution for Mm tax-free. So, you know, there's no other plan in the world that I know of that allows you to do that. I mean, this is... This is quite the tax benefit. So if you're already close to being able to qualify, you ought to look at getting an HSA qualified plan yep. and open it up and start throwing money in there. That's yep. what Kathy and I have done, yep. and it's it's building up. Yeah, you put it in it. Part of it, you can put it in investment, so you can get some market growth out of it as well. Yeah, you can invest it, no doubt about it. All right, well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net, and email us your questions at info at moneymd.net. We would love to hear from you. You can give us a call as well, John and Steve, at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.